Chapter 8. The Pulpit I had not been seated very long ere a man of certain venerable robustness entered. Immediately as the storm-pelted door flew back upon admitting him, a quick regardful eye of him by all the congregation sufficiently attested that this fine old man was the chaplain. Yes, it was the famous Father Maple, so called by the whalemen among whom he was a great favorite. He had been a sailor and a harpooner in his youth, but for many years past had dedicated his life to the ministry. At the time I now write of, Father Maple was in the hardy winter of a healthy old age, that sort of old age which seems merged into a second flowering of youth. For among all the fissures of his wrinkles, there shone certain mild gleams of a newly developing bloom, the spring verdure peeping forth even beneath February snow. No one having previously heard his history could for the first time behold Father Maple without the utmost interest, because there was a certain engrafted clerical peculiarities about him, imputable to that adventurous maritime life he had led. When he entered, I observed that he carried no umbrella, and certainly had not come in his carriage, for his tarpaulin hat ran down with melting sleet, and his great pilot-cloth jacket seemed almost to drag him to the floor with the weight of water it had absorbed. However, hat and coat overshoes were one by one removed, and hung up in a little space in an adjacent corner, when arrayed in a decent suit he quietly approached the pulpit. Like most old-fashioned pulpits, it was a very lofty one, and since a regular stairs to such a height would, by its long angle with the floor, seriously contract the already small area of the chapel, the architect, it seemed, had acted upon the hint of Father Maple, and finished the pulpit without a stairs, substituting a perpendicular side ladder, like those used in the mounting a ship from a boat at sea. The wife of a whaling captain had provided the chapel with a handsome pair of red-worsted man-ropes for the ladder, which, being itself nicely headed and stained with a mahogany color, the whole contrivance, considering what manner of chapel it was, seemed by no means in bad taste. Halting for an instant at the foot of the ladder, and with both hands grasping the ornamental knobs of the man-ropes, Father Maple cast a look upwards, and then with a truly sailor-like but still reverential dexterity, hand over hand mounted the steps as if ascending the main top of his vessel. The perpendicular parts of this side ladder, as is usually the case with swinging ones, were of cloth-covered rope, only the rounds were of wood, so that at every step there was a joint. At my first glimpse of this pulpit, it had not escaped me that, however convenient for a ship, these joints in the present instance seemed unnecessary, for I was not prepared to see Father Maple, after gaining the height, slowly turn around and, stooping over the pulpit, deliberately drag up the ladder step by step till the hole was deposited within, leaving him impregnable in his little Quebec. I pondered some time without fully comprehending the reason for this. Father Maple enjoyed such a wide reputation for sincerity and sanctity that I could not suspect him of courting notoriety by any mere tricks of the stage. No, thought I, there must be some sober reason for this thing. Furthermore, it must symbolize something unseen. Can it be, then, that by that act of physical isolation he signifies his spiritual withdrawal for the time, from all outward worldly ties and connections? 
Yes, for replenished with the meat and wine of the word to the faithful man of God, this pulpit, I see, is a self-containing stronghold, a lofty Renbreitstein, and a perennial well of water within the walls. But the side ladder was not the only strange feature of the place borrowed from the chaplain's former seafarings. Between the marble cenotaphs on either side of the pulpit, the wall which formed its back was adorned with a large painting representing a gallant ship beating against a terrible storm off a lee coast of black rocks and snowy breakers. But high above the flying scud and dark rolling clouds, there floated a little isle of sunlight from which beamed forth an angel's face, and this bright face shed a distinct spot of radiance upon the ship's tossed deck, something like the silver plate now inserted into the victory plank where Nelson fell. Ah, noble ship, the angel seemed to say, beat on, beat on, thou noble ship, and bear a hearty realm, for lo, the sun is breaking through, the clouds are rolling off, serenest azure is at hand. Nor was the pulpit itself without a trace of the same sea taste that had achieved the ladder and the picture. Its paneled front was in the likeness of a ship's bluff bows, and the Holy Bible rested on the projecting piece of scrollwork, fashioned from a ship's fiddlehead beak. What could be more full of meaning? For the pulpit is ever the earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in its rear. The pulpit leads the world. From thence it is the storm of God's quick wrath is first descried, and the bow must bear the earliest brunt. From thence it is the God of breezes fair or foul is first invoked for favorable winds. Yes, the world's a ship on its passage out, and not a voyage complete, and the pulpit is its prow. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.